As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome, everyone, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me today is Peter Sarsgaard's new best friend. It's Felipe Cardenas of The Athletic. Felipe, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I did not exchange numbers with Peter Sarsgaard, and I think that was my mistake. Uh, so I cannot call him my friend. I, I wish we were friends, but... Well, based on the interview, like he, he seems to be living in a, in a log cabin with solar panels. That was my takeaway. So I don't even know if he has a cell phone. He does have a cell phone. In fact, it wasn't in the story that I that I that I wrote for the Athletic that that interview with Peter Sarsgaard. But he he did bring up the fact that being out in Vermont, in a rural area of Vermont, um, one of his daily objectives was to not be on his phone. Hmm. Um, and and for his daughters, he has two daughters uh, to to put their phones away as well. So I think I asked him something about Twitter. He has a Twitter account that has his last tweet was like in 2018. <laughs> and that's when he said, oh, man, like I'm, I'm not on my phone anymore. All right. That's probably a good way to be. But let's let's stick with that because we're going to talk uh, South American World Cup qualifying. We're going to talk Atlanta United, uh, a couple other things in there as well. But, yeah, the, the Peter Sarsgaard one was a thing that you and Brooks sort of told me about when you all, all were on the show last time. Uh, and it had not yet been published. It seemed very like out there in terms of a premise. It felt like 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 Pablo had been <laughs> pitching some things, and everybody at the Athletic was like, "You know what? I want to I want to pitch some random stuff too." And now the Peter Sarsgaard story has come to be from the article itself. I won't spoil too much, but uh, it was your wife wa- watching an architecture program. Is that correct? Yeah, it was. You know, one of those typical nights during the pandemic where you're laying in bed and you're you're on your phone. Um, and uh, you know, I think I was watching TV and my wife was on her phone and she was watching architectural digest on YouTube. They have these like short snippets where they go to someone's, someone's home, a famous person, and they kind of go through their home and just discuss the design and the aesthetics of the the apartment or whatever it may be. And I, you know, I, I've always liked Peter Sarsgaard. I think he's a very good actor. He's in some of the movies that I, that I've enjoyed like growing up. Uh, and so I'm like, oh, I was already intrigued. But then I heard uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's wife say, you know, that say something like he's a big he, Peter's really into soccer. Um, and I was like, hold on. I told my wife, so I'm like, pause that. What was that? <laughs> and she kind of like, re, you know, rolled back. And that's when I saw that, you know, she was discussing like this big poster um, photograph of Pele and Muhammad Ali. And I heard him say, like, you know, these are the two greatest sportsmen of all time. And, and so I just started digging. Um, and, and I went to one of my editorial meetings soon after that and said, hey, guys, like, I found out that Peter Sarsgaard is legit a soccer fan. And not only that, like, he played, you know, and, and he had done an, an interview on NPR where he was discussing one of his recent films. Um, and he got into, like, tactics and stuff. And I was like, wow, this guy really gets it. So... I went through many people until I finally found one of his representatives and his rep connected us and we had a great chat. You know, we talked for over an hour and a half. It was awesome. 
So I'm I'm definitely telling on myself here a little bit when I say that like if I weren't doing this show with the regularity that I do, I don't know if I would watch soccer with the regularity that I do. Mm-hmm. It sounds like Peter Sarsgaard watches any game that is on anywhere in the world at any given moment. He says in the in the interview uh, that he'd like watch any soccer game over any movie. Yeah. But, but then if he's not on his phone, if he's not really like, I think you, there was a joke about him being a color commentator someday. But for the most part, it seems like he's just sitting there watching soccer and internalizing it. Is is that the read you got? Is this like, is he going to write a book about it? Is there going to be a movie made someday? Or is it just that's how he chooses to relax? I think it's a couple things. One, uh, he he desperately wants to be involved and, and at, a, at a higher level, at a deeper level in discussing the game. Uh, and, and he's clearly he's lived in London and worked in London for a long time. And he's traveled the world. Uh, because of his job as an actor and he's seen f- soccer around the world. Like he told me a story about being in South Africa uh, and, and going to these kind of like random uh, soccer fields and, and, and watching the young kids play and understanding the South African culture of the sport. That is, that's kind of different. It's unique. You know, soccer isn't the main sport in South Africa. There are other sports like rugby and cricket, uh, but soccer is kind of like this emerging sport that's played by one uh, mainly like the black population in South Africa. So he's kind of like goes really deep into the history. He knows his history. And he did tell me that he had to scale back the amount of games that he watches because his wife was kind of like, yo, like you watch too much soccer. Uh, we have a family. And so he, you know, that wasn't in the story, but it was kind of like an interesting anecdote about how, uh, you know, he, 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 now he's picking and choosing what's the best game I want to watch today instead of sitting all day watching games. And like, he might check a highlight show or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's like, it was a legitimate interest. Uh, and, and, and I think he, he's still growing in his interest of like other leagues, like the premier league is kind of like, I would say his main league, but he doesn't have a he's not a fan, a super fan of one particular club. He loves La Liga. He loves kind of like the culture and the style of play of La Liga. And he's and he wants to get into MLS a little bit. So I think he's very open minded. And and, and, you know, the one thing that he that I got out of it, like I said before, like he just he wants to be involved. And at the end of that story, when he was like, you know, I don't want to be explaining offside to people. I want to talk about the storytelling, the narrative and the history of the game. He knows this history, man. Not many people name drop Socrates. So that was that was going to be my final question on this one, because uh, there is other uh, there are other things to be discussed. But Peter Sarsgaard's soccer preferences are, are number one in my mind. Like, when did you know this was going to be a good interview? Because there are people who I can imagine love soccer and want to talk about it. And then, like, there's another reality in which he begins by talking about how much he loves Man City once they were acquired, as opposed to he stopped liking them when they were acquired. And it sort of changes the tone of the article a little bit because it goes from, oh, he's really into like different s- smaller teams. He likes Raul Batiste, uh, things yeah. like that. If he were just like, oh, yeah, I liked Man City when they when they signed Rubinho and then kept signing players. And uh, yeah, that's what I'm about. Like it, it is a different article. So what was that moment for you when it was like, this is going to be good. This is going to be substantive. Several moments, but I think the, the one finding out if he, you know, a lot of people say, Oh, I played soccer or or, I played as a kid or I played in college and, or I played in high school. And you're like, did you really like how, how good were you? Like how invested were you? And when he was discussing St. Louis soccer in the eighties and the coaches that he had, um, you know, for, for some deep American soccer, uh, aficionados that listen to the show, like Ty Keogh and his father, um, were his coaches in St. Louis. And he had some very well-known Yugoslavian coaches from that era as well that were well-established in St. Louis. Like those were the coaches that he had. So he had like legit training and coaching. He could discuss tactics in the way that he played as a child. And they were introducing false nine tactics and Cruyff was, you know, revolutionizing the way people were playing and coaches were, were, you know, educating their, their, their players about it. So I thought that was really interesting because it was, it, for me, it told a story of his kind of his beginning and he went on to go to Washington university in St. Louis, which is a well-known soccer school. Um, and so that, that to me told me that he, he could play, um, his, the fandom part I thought was just, was, was great. I think that's when the, the interview turned and it got fun because it, he's, he's very open about not 
about changing teams, which I think for the diehards is like, how mm-hmm. can you possibly do that? How can you like Liverpool and then cheer for Man City and things like that? Or Real Betis and Sevilla, that's a classico in Spain. Like those teams do not get along. And he's like, I love them both. Like I like that. And and I thought that was just, you know, refreshing to hear from someone that uh, understands the game, understands the culture of the game, but is very comfortable changing allegiances uh, based on a very like perhaps personal preferences. And so it got fun when we got into that because I, when I was listening to him and I knew that this was going to be a good interview, it would be written and it would be posted and perhaps even in the UK, they would read it. I was like, I even told him, I was like, I don't think a lot of people in the UK are going to like that stance, but um, it was just great to hear someone have like absolutely no, no problem changing teams, changing loyalties and doing it in the Man City example that you brought up. He was like, you know, as soon as they were bought and, and they became this like super club, like he just checked out. Yeah, and and I like the I like that mentality. Chuck Klosterman has the same thing where he roots for like players and specific teams, but not yeah. the overall organization. And I think there is like like that is an interesting approach to watching soccer and being a soccer fan of not taking taking part in the glory of when your team wins, but sort of being like, this team is really fun to watch. They do really interesting things or they have an interesting backstory in the way they operate. So I'm going to pay attention to them until they don't. And then I won't. And I, and I do like that because it's a bit more practical. And I think also like, we get that question a lot on this show about like, who should I support if I'm getting into soccer, who should be my Premier league team or my La Liga team. And we always kind of go with like, who, who is a relatively successful team? Because if you're just going with one player, if they, they, this team has an American, so I'm rooting for them. Lille have an American, so I'm rooting for them. Mm-hmm. But when they sell Timothy Weah, they no longer have that American. And now you're kind of rooted to this team that might be good, but might, might not. So I do like the idea a, a little bit more of, of kind of jumping around, watching different games, watching different teams, and maybe developing a natural loyalty or having that loyalty change at times. But I didn't get the impression that he is out there in the streets celebrating when Liverpool win the title. And then next season, if somebody else does, he's celebrating them. No, yeah, I don't think so either. And and I thought like just his his take on storytelling and soccer was really interesting because he is uh, an accomplished actor, uh, and he he like he was adamant and, and open about the fact that that's important to him when he when he the way he digests the sport, the narrative and the storytelling throughout a match or throughout a season is very important to him. That's how we got into this discussion about commentary and, and what type of commentary he he's drawn to and what he likes and what he doesn't like. And he was serious. Like he, he had said that on a previous podcast that I heard about him wanting to be like how he would love to you know become a, a commentator. I think the story was he was walking in Brooklyn with his wife, with Maggie Gyllenhaal. And he told her, he's like, you know, I want to be a soccer commentator. <laughs> and she was like, what, you know, uh, but he gets into that and it makes sense. Like someone like him, you know, is, you know, kind of embraces this game in a different way and, and embraces art in a different way. And it is really about engaging with something more than just, you know, club culture or tactics you know, he wants to learn about a player that he may not have known about when he turned on the TV. And that's why he brought up Ray Hudson, who he thought was just mm-hmm. like one of those guys that just does it so well, no matter how uh, absurd he can be, for lack of a better word. That was the word that, you know, Sarsgaard used to describe Ray Hudson's style. But at the end, he was like, but Hudson gets it. You know, he can weave a thread through a story, even in a game that you're not interested in. Suddenly you're like, who is this guy? I, I really enjoyed his thoughts on Ray Hudson. I really enjoyed thinking about Peter Sarsgaard as a soccer color commentator because when I think of his roles, he's not like a light, easygoing character actor. His, oh, yeah. his characters tend to be pretty intense, pretty flawed, pretty dramatic. I just imagine him being very serious, and I'm sure he wouldn't be, but I'm just picturing some of his different characters doing the commentary, and it's it's very strained and kind of emotionally pained at the same time. And he's dark. It's his characters are dark. They're some of the yep. dark characters, you know, in, in, in cinema history, if you look back and really analyze them. And I thought it was interesting. I asked him, like, what would your signature goal call sound like? And he started cracking up. And then he he answered, like, well, you know, he likes that perfunctory type of goal call, which is just goal. You know, yep. so that says a lot about his style. Uh, and, and listen, I'll, I'll, I think it's important to say, like, he is. He loves St. Louis. Uh, he he wants to be involved in, in in that new franchise, that new MLS franchise in St. Louis. If St. Louis SC 
or city. I think it's St. Louis City FC. I'm not really sure. I think they they cap they they write city in all caps. So I think they want us to call them city. Uh, but if they don't call Peter Sarsgaard and get him involved in that club, uh, they're making a huge mistake. The guy is like jonesing to be involved. So I mean, give him a call. I, I hope his I hope his first piece of advice is for them to uh, not expect to be the only team in the league called City. That's just my, that's just my feeling. Uh, maybe that's not the best approach. Uh, I will also add uh, in in as much as like I did not know that he was a, a serious soccer player who had the history. I didn't know that about, about Felipe until I read some of his articles because I've played with Felipe. He's very good. I think I feel like you, you keep that quiet so that the hustle works really, really well when you get the ball and suddenly you school some kids. Because I feel like I've seen you burn some people and did not realize that you had the college ball PDL experience. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I, I played my whole life, you know, and I, and I think we, you and I have been have played a couple pickup games that get pretty serious and they're mm-hmm. at MLS and professional players there. And um, you know, I think we all discover like who has talent and who doesn't. Um, and we all surprise and impress each other. So I appreciate the props. Yeah, I played in college, played in PDL. The PDL, I don't even think it exists anymore. Um, I think it's USL League 2 now. Yeah. Um, but gosh, I'm, my back hurts just thinking about some of those <laughs> games. But that, that game in Orlando was fun. That was an awesome game that we played in Orlando during that last uh, All-Star break. Were you a holding midfielder? What was your position? I mean, I think, you know, I grew up playing every position, but I was, yeah, I was definitely like a central midfielder. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I like to be a 10. I, I like to be around the ball, but uh, I played eight, six and 10 um, in the midfield. When I went to Columbia for a year in high school and I played at a really high level, my coach put me at right back. Um, and, and that whole, we were, I think it was like a four, four, two, and everyone in that back line was just like really technical. They weren't natural defenders. And I think that's what he liked about it. So, uh, yeah, I think I still like to call myself a 10. I'm a 10. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I have a very strange question uh, for you. Like, So you have the experience of playing in the U.S. You played in Columbia a little bit. Uh, if if it had gone like, you know, the uh, the professional route, let's say you kept going with it. Like and you got to the level where you got call ups from both of them. Do you ever think about how you would have gone about making that decision? Because we've we've seen that a lot recently. There've been you know many conversations about dual nationals, Yunus Musa, chief amongst them. And I am always interested in in that sort of that process. My perspective is usually that like you can exist in multiple realities and you can be like like you you can basically be Colombian, be American, even if you're playing for Colombia, you still have that, like the other identity, but I'm wondering how it is for you. And and if you've ever thought about what that would be like, if you were faced with that uh, decision. Oh my gosh, Taylor, I thought about that, like my entire, like teenage years, like probably every single day I would, I was born in Colombia, but I moved to the States when I was not even two years old. So I grew up in the States, but I would travel to Colombia. I felt really connected to to my, you know, the, my birth country and my cousins and my grandparents, my aunts and uncles. And that culture was like ingrained in me, the soccer culture. I remember being like a, a teenager, like probably 14, 15 years old. And I would be in the bathroom and I would practice my national anthem face. And the national anthem was typically the one, the Colombian national anthem. I would, I would so imagine... Awesome. Yeah, I would imagine that being played and I was like, what would I look like? Would my hand be on my heart? Would I be serious? Would I be singing? Uh, and and so I would I would think Colombia, that was kind of like the the dream, you know, to, again, remember Colombia in the 90s. It was so exciting, you know, that 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 soccer, that style of soccer. Um, but of course, the U.S. and that that link and, and my friends, I played club and all my friends were, you know, it was in Indiana. We were it was a very kind of American soccer culture. 
and I wanted to play at, at the highest youth levels. And I, and I was, you know, I want to go through the Indiana state team tryouts and Olympic development. I went through all of that. And so there was that like, wow, what if, what if we make it, what if we get there? And, and um, you know, you're playing for a US U15 or U17 thing. So Again, I didn't get to that level, but I think if someone were to come to me and say, these two clubs, these two countries want you to play. I mean, I probably as a kid, as a 16 year old, having played in Colombia at that age and experiencing that whole uh, 93, 94, uh, just the, the the culture of that, that national team, like I probably would have said Colombia, but you know, different times, you know, today I can understand why a young dual national is looking at the U S like, man, that, that would be tight to play for the U S. Yeah. Plus we have, I think enough central midfield options that uh, C- Columbia can use you, especially last I checked Columbia, not having the best go of it in world cup qualifying, which is an unintentional segue, but a good one that I'm going to now take uh, initially Felipe, when I reached out, I wanted to talk to you about world cup qualifying in South America uh, that was before I realized that that wasn't a thing that was currently happening anymore. And so let's talk about why that's not happening and why uh, South American World Cup qualifying has been uh, suspended. I'm going to assume temporarily, but you never know. It's temporary. I mean, today, as we're recording this, today is a match day. It would have been a Conmebol World Cup qualifying match day. Um, in, in Colombia's case, I think they were set to face Paraguay, but that was after having the, the the Brazil match was postponed, which would have been just a massive game for, for both countries. Brazil, well situated at the top of the table, Colombia desperately needing a win. And after a coaching change, Carlos Queiroz is no longer the coach of Colombia. They've now hired Reynaldo Ruela, who was just previously coaching Chile. Um, he had coached Colombia before, I think in the 2002 World Cup cycle. Uh, barely, barely missing out on the on the, that South Korea Japan World Cup. I think Colombia missed out by a point or, or, or a goal. It was something crazy, like a goal differential. It was one goal, um, and and so it, the March qualifiers have been postponed, and it was due to co- the COVID nineteen pandemic and and just the strict quarantine restrictions that are still in place, not just throughout South America, but still throughout the Europe or the world, including Europe, where the majority of these players were based. And so it came down to even coaches like Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp speaking publicly about the fact that they did not want to release South American players because they didn't think it was safe. They didn't think it it made sense for them to, for the players to leave and then have to come back. Clearly this is a competitive thing as well, but like having to come back to England and then quarantine for an additional 10 to 14 days, uh, it would just, it was just not something that they were willing to do. And so that's when Comable started to see that it was bubbling in the wrong direction. And there was a moment where there was discussion about these March qualifiers actually moving to Europe, which I w- it would have been mind-blowing, just unprecedented for Conmebol South American World Cup qualifiers to take place in some sort of like European bubble. Um, it, got, it was very seriously discussed until finally Conmebol just decided to uh, you know, postpone these tournaments. And so it, there, were, there were other side stories as well. The, the Colombian, I think, interior minister had said publicly that he would not accept any flights um, from Brazil at, at that time. And remember, like I said, Colombia was set to host Brazil in the first March qualifier. And Brazil, if you don't know, um, is is their COVID surge has been nonstop. And they're in dire straits in, in Brazil. Um, don't quote me, but I believe it's something like 3,000 deaths a day. It's just awful the way that that country has been ravaged by the pandemic and has not been able to curtail it. And the, meanwhile, their local leagues just continue to play. Um, and, and so th- that was another part of it. There was kind of that like geopolitical side of the equation um, where Brazil um, in, in a difficult state would not perhaps have been allowed to travel to Colombia for that World Cup qualifier. So still, I think there's still wait and see when when these games are going to be played. But just just a bizarre situation for what this qualifying cycle heading to Qatar 2022 looks like for South America. Bolsonaro being Bolsonaro, I'm assuming it hasn't really changed the way he's approaching COVID, the president of Brazil. Um, is there a chance that like like the suspension of these qualifiers, the idea that they might end up being played in Europe, does that 
change things at all? Do you think the narrative changes if once you don't have the national team playing anymore because things are so bad? Do you feel like that makes people maybe turn their heads a little bit more? Does it make people have more of a reaction, especially at a governmental level? Or are you feeling more like it's just going to kind of continue to be the case because now he's vested in the idea of, of it not being that big of a deal? That's a great question because it's the power of the Brazilian national team in, in Brazil is is very real. And they can you know, turn the tide there if there's a possibility that the national team could be uh, impeded in any way of, for, for qualifying for the next World Cup or if perhaps uh, not playing in Brazil and losing the advantage of playing in Brazil, uh, losing points perhaps because it is not safe and they can't host games. So, yeah, I mean, I, there's that possibility. I haven't seen that discussed, but uh, the Brazilian national team is is, is a very powerful product um, throughout South America, throughout the world, clearly. But in Brazil, it, it really can change things. Um, I, I don't know. You know, the political situation in Brazil is, is so volatile, so toxic, uh, it, it very reminiscent of what 2020 looked like here in the States, uh, that, that type of division. Uh, and, and it's, it's just such a massive country and, and they have not been able to curtail this. And so I think this is going to be a long-term problem for Brazil. And, and to your point, I think it is worth watching closely to see how the Brazilian Federation deals with this, what types of pressure they'll be put under by Comabol to get things straightened out, because eventually these qualifiers are going to be played. Um, we're, we're, you know, the, 2022 this this world cup is in november of 2022 uh and the the south american cycle the world cup qualifiers typically they they do drag on even in a non-covid year it's over two years of qualifying uh and they're behind and so you know i don't know what the solution is you know i thought playing in europe when that was discussed i remember telling talking to my friends in colombia and thinking like just do it like let's you know it's it's so like anti south american soccer culture to play qualifiers in europe but if this is what it takes i think you get it done it was not the final decision so we'll see i, I don't know what the solution is or when they're going to decide but the clock is definitely ticking so let's go with the theoretical world in which the, the multiverse reality in which they do play these qualifiers in europe or they already have done that is there a country that you think benefits the most from being in, in like neutral grounds where they don't have home pressure? And who do you think suffers the most? My assumption would be that Bolivia and Ecuador are su- suddenly in some trouble because they don't have the home elevation advantage. But I'm wondering which teams you think are maybe more likely to improve and which teams are more likely to have a downturn in form. Let's quickly stick to Brazil. I think Brazil, because they're so... They're so um used to playing throughout the world friendlies that you know the, the famous brazil tour global tour is something that has been going on for for so many years and they just take the, the national team around the world and play friendlies in poland austria asia the middle east can so, i interject there just to say like i enjoyed reading about like the santos team i like that i asked if i could and then just did uh sorry mm-hmm. um, but i enjoyed reading about like the santos team uh with pele where they where they you know they play like 80 games in 50 days and it was sort of yeah. like oh man i can't believe they they used to do those types of tours. Like they don't do that. Oh wait, no, they still do that. Not yeah. to that degree, but certainly they're still doing that world tour. It is a weird thing that it that it persists. But I understand why because it's Brazil. It's so that was my cool. my quick interjection. I apologize. It, it, no, no, I mean it's a major money maker for them, uh, and and it, it it will continue to be like that. I think that the equivalent in in Concacaf is Mexico. The way the Mexico tour mm. works throughout the United States is just like so much money is 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 produced is, is, is from, from those tours. So I think Brazil would be fine. I feel like Brazil would feel like, yes, they want to play at home and playing at the Maracanã or playing at any real stadium in Brazil, having to go to Brazil is tough for all the South American countries. Uh, so I think there would be a little bit of like, you know, Colombia, perhaps if they, uh, they were set to face Brazil at home, uh, maybe they think, okay, like we're getting them in a neutral venue. Um, and and the, the players for Columbia, the majority of that starting 11 are European based players. They're used to playing in these empty stadiums now in Europe for champions league and Europa league. And so I think it would just kind of like feel, they would feel at home. A lot of these players, uh, to your point, Ecuador and, and Bolivia is, is, is different circumstances. These players aren't all European based. 
and they rely on the altitude. They rely on that home field advantage. So I think they would be at a, at, at a big disadvantage there, but overall, you know, uh, you know, Columbia, they played in, they, they like to play at 3 PM in that like very steamy coastal town of Barranquilla. It's hot. It's difficult to play. The grass is high. It's all very intentional. So they lose that as well. Uh, Argentina, you just don't want to play Argentina at home. They haven't been excellent at home though, but it's still Argentina. Um, and, and so, and, and, you know, Peru, Chile, these are all countries that have in Uruguay as well, that have these deep, historic uh references to the stadiums that they play in it's tough to go into these stadiums and win in world cup qualifying so you basically nullify all of that if you play in a european bubble uh but i think the play wouldn't suffer because these most of these players have been doing this since last march they're playing in empty stadiums in europe the entire champions league was essentially like that uh last year and it would just be business as usual and then for Colombia, it has, I guess, not been business as usual in terms of uh, parting ways with Carlos Quiroz. I, I had 15 minutes carved out for you to just talk about his contributions to Colombian football, uh, if you wanted to, Felipe. Oh, <laughs> uh, just can I yell? Can I swear? Can I <laughs> so you, what, what, what went wrong? Because it, it seemed like a risky appointment when it happened. And that seems to be the case now. What do you think were the major obstacles and, and how are you feeling with the new hire? I think the Colombian Football Federation, uh, for lack of a better term, got a little too cute. You know, I think the 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 term, the success of having a foreign coach in Colombia with Jose Peckerman, who's from Argentina, uh, since you know from 2014 through to the 2018 World Cup, uh, really enamored them with that the notion that hey, this this national team and this current generation of players, uh, that's the psychology that they. Uh, respond to a foreign coach that comes to Colombia with a different perspective, a different culture, a different way of, of coaching the game. That's a bit more progressive. And so when Peckerman steps down in Colombia, a lot of the journalists and even, you know, some fans were like, we want a Colombian coach. Uh, This, this, this national team should be coached by a a Colombian, similar to what you see in Mexico. When, when any foreign coach is up for hire, it just becomes this kind of culture clash and so that happened, but they went with Carlos Queiroz because you know he he did well with Iran. They did well. They played exciting soccer at that 2018 World Cup. They were very fast, very technical, uh, very progressive and expansive, and an attacking style. So from that perspective, there was a little bit of like intrigue. You know, maybe you know, and Colombia is starting to develop players that can play in that style. It's not it's not the methodical slow buildup that Colombia has been known for in, in previous decades. So. I guess that made sense. But in the end, he, from what I've read and, and what's been reported, there, it just didn't, he never won the locker room over. And and that can be on the players as well, you know, being a, a bit too uh, privileged in that sense that they're not going to respond to a coach they don't want. But we see that around the world, <laughs> clubs and national teams. And so I think he changed a bit of the tactics a little bit that the players were not used to. Uh, it was a little bit too direct, in my opinion, the way that they wanted to play. Uh, the tactics were were actually that like the in-game decision making from the coach's side was sometimes difficult to understand. I mean, I, w- I remember one game against Chile. He just it looked like a hockey line shift and like four four guys came out, four forwards came back in. And they didn't know what they were supposed to do. I mean, they, it was just, it wasn't what you want to see from a national team that is trying to maintain a certain level of success and, and stay, stay in the hunt with these bigger, more successful countries in South America. So there were reports of a fight between James Rodriguez and, and, and another player, um, a, a, a central midfielder who plays for Bournemouth. Uh, that was, you know, then the Federation and along with Hamas Rodriguez sent on a statement saying that that was not true, that the media were making up lies. And it was just like this big soap opera style scandal until finally Kairos, you know, stepped down and there were, it spent weeks. Was he, were they going to buy him out? It was like a $2 million buyout. And so finally it happened. And Ronaldo Reda, a Colombian coach, well-respected in Colombia and throughout South America, um, you know, he, he took over and in Colombia, they, I think there's the sense of relief that he's there, but the mountain that they have to climb is not going to be easy for him. Were you being like 
intentionally coy there when you said a Bournemouth player or uh, or is it unknown who it was? Uh, it's not unknown who, who it was. The name is just escaping me right now. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure if that was a like a Colum- or a Bournemouth player that we didn't really want to talk about. Uh, Jefferson Lerma? Jefferson Lerma. There you go. Yeah. There we go. Okay, cool. He's cool, a cool, tough cool. guy. He's a tough dude. Uh, I think he's a very good player and, and something didn't jive right with Hamas. And again, so I think just so many factors went into that from the locker room change to the players not settling, not, then they didn't play well. They, then they got just completely owned by Ecuador 6-1. And it was just, you knew that there was trouble there and a change had to be made. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. So I would like to then uh, segue to talking about Atlanta United by talking about like a managerial uh, turmoil and uncertainty about the future. And now they've got a new manager. But in reading some of your pieces of late, it feels like maybe I'm sort of misremembering the Frank DeBoer era at Atlanta United because I think of it as sort of unsuccessful from start to finish. Is that incorrect? Is it is it fair to say that near the end they were getting positive results? And and like, am I being overly harsh in saying that it was a a kind of failure across the board? No, I don't. I don't think you're being overly harsh. Uh, at the same time, there were they did get results. I mean, they 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 won the U.S. Open Cup. They won that 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 the Campeones Cup, which was at the time uh, and will continue to be a very important tournament between MLS and, and Liga MX. Uh, and they were so, so close to hosting a second success, successive, um, a, a second consecutive MLS Cup at home in 2019. They lost to Toronto in that semifinal, Eastern Conference semifinal. So, no, I mean, I, the reason why I don't think you're being harsh is because from what I know from, from the reporting that I've done, you know, since Frank DeBoer's arrival in Atlanta and, and his subsequent dismissal during the right after actually it was during the MLS's back tournament in Orlando, you know, he just never truly had the locker room in his favor. Uh, and, and that's not entirely on him. Uh, you know, some of the players just didn't like the fact that, uh, that they, that the club had decided to just pull the rug out from under them and, and, and change the culture of the club with, with a European coach after Tata Martino. Uh, but at the same time, he did not really do, uh, himself any favors as well, where he he came in and just wanted to change the way the team set up, the way the team played. They spent the first month before their CCL match 
in a, you know, just training in defensive postures and defensive uh, formations and that unsettled the group that was used to playing attacking soccer, pressing, taking risks. And so that, that for me, that was the beginning and that, that never truly, uh, you know, came together. And then he had to blow up with PT Martinez publicly, both here and in Argentina. And so just, yeah, just the dominoes just started to fall and it never worked out. And so I think, what you're seeing from Gabriel Heinze very early, he has not played an official match yet is a coach who's not going to let that happen. He will not stand for that. He's immediately stamped his authority within the club, within the locker room. And uh, you're going to see that for as long as he's here in Atlanta, I think that will be the vibe. Yeah. The vibe I I picked up on from former players and from the people who are now working with him is uh, intense. That's the word I'm going to use to describe Ince uh, thus far in his managerial tenure. Uh, would you agree with that estimation? Yes, and that's definitely been the buzzword. And I think it, it is kind of buzzwordy when all the players are talking about intensity and, and he's intense and the training is intense. Uh, but, you know, I go back to Tata Martino when he was in Atlanta. And I remember he was being asked a lot about like the young players like George Bello and Andrew Carlton and uh, and the one thing that he would always bring up that they were missing was intensity. He was like, they need to increase the, their intensity. Uh, and, and, and so I think that that word, it just permeates from Argentine culture. It's the way they play. It's the way they live and breathe the sport. It's an intense, passionate way of playing and training, especially. And so the, the, the I would say, I guess the, the American players here in Atlanta, even from the 2017 team when Tata started, and now this 2021 version of Rehense, they're kind of getting this, this, this new education about what that means, what it means to be intense and to play with intensity. It's very deliberate. It's not just an adjective to describe uh, a personality trait or the, 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 I guess, like the harshness of a, of a training session. It, it should be part of the way that they play the game. Uh, and so that's why it's the players are saying it in unison, because I think it's really coming from the coach. Like, this is how we're going to play. We're going to be an intense group. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, he is an intense individual. Mm-hmm. Like you can see it in his, the way he, he projects himself, not just here in MLS, but the way he did it in Argentina and in his, his beginning coaching stages, uh, the way he was as a player, if you under, if you if you remember his years as a player with Manchester United and Real. Oh, I do. Yeah, I know you do. Um, <laughs> but so that that's all part of kind of like the package that that is Gabriel Hainsa, and the players are starting to to understand that, and I think they'll embrace it. The the last thing I really remember that will always stand out. This is unfair, but it's it's the truth. Uh, was I think his last game for Man United was the FA Cup final that they lost in like 2007 or 2008. Uh, and I remember the the Guardian minute by minute reporter at one point just wrote like Sir Alex Ferguson sell this man because he had just been like beaten for a goal I think for the second time in the game. So that's maybe clouding my memory. A little bit. It's probably better to focus more so on what he has done since then, which is uh, go to Argentina, uh, get uh, Argentina's juniors back up to the, the top division. Uh, then what uh, is it? Velez Sarsgaard? Sars- 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 I wanted to say Sarsgaard again. <laughs> That's your fault. <laughs> Not Velez Sarsgaard, Velez Sarsfield. Yeah. Uh, and now with Atlanta. Uh, and in that article, you talked about the sort of his approach to training as well as going back to Tata Martino's uh, the line I saw was it wasn't the intensity of the training sessions under Martino that was foreign to players, but rather the cadence of those sessions. And it seems like there is a dramatic or stark difference between South American training, or at least uh, like maybe Argentinian training and the way it's done over here. Can you talk a little bit about what those differences are or what the differences in cadence might be, what it is that sort of, players that aren't used to it have to get uh, up to speed on or come to grips with? Sure. Yeah. I mean, personally, like I said, we said before, we were discussing before, like I grew up in this, in the U S I played kind of like in this American soccer culture. I had some coaches that were, that, you know, the preseason was really tough. People were throwing up because we were running in a gym and climbing stairs and running laps and doing these crazy, like endurance training. So it's not like American coaches aren't intense. Like that's, that is well established. And in speaking to, you know, current former players from Atlanta United, that was what I was told. Like they've had diff- other coaches that are American where the training is very intense. The, the difference is that in Argentina, especially, I think South America, perhaps in general, but especially in Argentina, uh, that intensity is, is just a daily grind. It's a daily part of the training, regardless of whether there's a, a there's 
you know, they're preparing for a match or, um, you know, whether they, the, the, the team needs a rest. Yeah. Rest happens. But like I said before, that intensity is something that just becomes part of the clubs and the players DNA. So I think that was the biggest difference because, you know, sports science is, 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 is revolutionary in, in soccer. And I think it's, 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 well, it's more established in the U S and especially in, in MLS. And so, you know, sports science professionals are saying these players have been through too much this week. They need a rest. And you've got a coach like Tata Martino saying, I don't really care about that. They need to, they need to play. They need to train. We're going to train today. Uh, and, and that, that is what we're the, the division starts or, the hurdles start to, to, to be higher than before where you're like, why are we doing this? Like, why are we doing 11 v 11 hardcore when we play, we're playing a game, we're traveling in two days. Uh, but for Tata Martino, it was just the way that he did it. It was the way that he got the team ready. It was the way that he wanted to see them improve and progress in a very difficult style of play that a lot of the players weren't used to. Uh, and some of the South Americans were used to it. So I, I just thought it was really interesting how that, even though Tata Martino and Gabriel Hainsey are, are, are perhaps different in, in the way they will eventually coach and, and the way their philosophies have evolved, they're very much coming from the same, I guess, coaching tree, the Bielsa coaching tree. Uh, remember, Hainsey played under Tata Martino at Newell's Old Boys uh, right before Hainsey retired. So they know each other well. And, and like I said, there's a line there between these three coaches and just the culture in Argentina about the way you're expected to play, the way you're expected to train. And, and I think that is just different from American soccer culture where you get days off. You There's a union for, for instance, there's a players union that's like, hey, you need to give guys breaks. Like they've worked for this. You know, the players union has, has negotiated these sort of things. And that is not commonplace in South American soccer. And so there were a lot of learnings that took place between coaches, players, uh, staff, physios, and, and that's why the, 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 the theme of that recent article I wrote about Haynes is that Atlanta United, having gone through all that already, and it was new to them, and there were deer in headlights at the beginning in 2017 under Tata, I think now that they've understood that, club-wide, from physios, front office, uh, even like digital marketing people that are supposed to be pr- producing content and may not be able to do it because Haynes won't give them access, all those things they're used to. And I think that'll set the team up for potentially, you know, immediate success under Hanson. What that success looks like, I'm not sure, but I think they'll be well-groomed in this sort of culture that that they've been used to uh, since 2017. So when you're describing that mentality, the expectations of playing soccer in Argentina, what it reminds me of, and I'm wondering if this is accurate, so I, I, I await your thoughts, uh, is I played American football in Turkey, which was an experience. And it, like the, we, I think we were doing preseason two-a-days. I went to get water, and one of the like the captains of the team was like, hey, man, you, you can't do that. I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, you, you got to ask permission to get water. You can't just drink water. And it was like, like I, I wasn't in the middle of something. I hadn't walked off. It was like, oh, yeah, our session was done. Wait till the next one starts. But he was like, oh, no, you must ask permission. That's how this works. Like, you can't just have water. And it sounds, that was crazy to me in the moment. But it sounds a little bit like what you're talking about, of like everything is regimented. There are rules. And it's, I guess I just picture Tata Martino having that same look that the Turkish linebacker had of like, what do you know? Of course you don't get a rest. What are you talking about? You need a day off? No, that's not how this works. Like, is it that level of intensity? I'm assuming they're allowed to hydrate, but like, is it that sort of like, no, you're supposed to be a machine, do your job. Yeah. And, and, and they were a club that was, and still is very ambitious. And, and at the time, you know, Tata Martino came here to win. They, they thought mm-hmm. they could win MLS cup in 2017 in his first year. So that tells you like the pressure that they put on the players, the pressure that they put on themselves as a coaching staff. They weren't just here. We're an expansion side and we're going to see how we do. And, and they had some tough stretches in 2017. They had to move from one stadium to another. And in those stretches, they played a lot of games. You know, there was like kind of like a weird schedule for, for the teams that were moving into new stadiums. They could only travel, you know what I mean? And so they were vying for important playoff spots and that, for the coaching staff was like, this is why we're working even harder now. And so the, the, the team, the entire team and the club had to kind of accept that. Uh, and yeah, like I remember like growing up playing club soccer in the U S like you wanted to drink a water, even, you know, in the middle of the game, you kind of like waited for a moment and then you'd run over to the sideline. Like someone would toss you uh, mm-hmm. a water bottle maybe, and you just drank and then you kept playing. Like 
when I went to Columbia as a, as a teenager and plays, like you do not do that. You do not. Right. Get yeah, exactly. The sideline for water. But guess what they do? They have bags of water that they toss out to the field. They roll them. They like, it's like skipping a rock on, on, a, <laughs> on a lake. And so they skip these like Ziploc bags with water in them towards players. You, you, you bite, you bite it off. You bite like a corner off and you drink water and then you throw it back on the field and you keep going. I learned that in Columbia. And so, yeah, it's like the taking a break, I'm tired or we need a break. We're, we're sore. Uh, especially when results are, are not going the club's way or, uh, you know, the, 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 the ambitious plan that is put in front of a coaching staff, um, is, is, is supposed to be met. Like they're going to push that. Um, there was a club, I think, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm almost positive. It was Rossi. It was actually, it was either Rossi or Velas who recently in Argentina got whooped like six, nothing or something. Um, and the next day after that loss, their, their social account, um, tweeted that the players were taking a rest day oh and fans of those, that team on Twitter just blew up. Like what is going on? Like who, like get rid of these players. Like, what is this club doing? We just got whooped. You're taking a day off. Uh, and so th- th- that's the culture thing. It's a culture thing that, that, that everyone has to kind of embrace and get used to. And I think there's perhaps hindsight knowing what, the previous staffs have gone through will come in well-prepared. I'm sure he's done his homework on, on MLS regulations and restrictions and what the union, uh, the players union has, has, has negotiated and what all that means. I'm sure he's going to be abreast of all that information, but it's still, it'll be, it's going to be fascinating to watch the way it all comes together. Uh, you said it's going to be fascinating to watch. You also mentioned previously he's not really giving that much access. Uh, what do you know so far about the team? How are you expecting to, them to look? What's the style going to be? I'm assuming intense because that's the word we've talked about already. I'm assuming high pressing and positional play. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the school, uh, the coaching school that that Gabriel Heinze comes from. He told us in his first um official press conference in December when someone asked him about tactics, he, 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 ad, he said something like, you know, I don't like to talk about tactics. I don't like to call them tactics. Um, it, it's, it's about positioning the players. It's kind of like a positional philosophy. And that philosophy, as you know, is, is, is rooted in, you know, the Dutch style of soccer from the seventies, you know, Pep Guardiola famously, you know, mastered it at Barcelona. Uh, in Haynes's case, uh, from what I've known and what I've read and reported, like he wasn't kind of inspired in that way of playing by Luis Enrique, who was his coach at Roma. Uh, as we know, Luis Enrique uh, adopted that sort of progressive and positional play at Barcelona. And now he's this coach of the Spanish national team, which that sort of play has become kind of like part of the Spanish soccer DNA. So, so yes, you'll see positional play is difficult. It's basically meant to be like a third there's always like a third man. It's like the third man uh, philosophy of soccer, the triangles throughout the field, uh, winning numbers in, in, in corners and in sectors of the field where you're out, you're out manning, you're outnumbering your opposition uh, with an additional man. And so that involves, in my opinion, just a lot of clean play throughout the pitch. Everyone's going to have to be able to play on the ball, be clean, be technical, be quick uh, and play out of pressure. And I think Atlanta United has an interesting roster. They're younger. They're a lot younger. You know, Joseph Martinez is coming back from injury. And, and, and I think the way that, you know, Hainsey wants to play, it is a high pressing uh, style and, and it's pressure throughout the field to regain possession. You know, over the weekend, I watched an old match between Velas and Independiente from uh, 2018 where he was coaching. Uh, and it was just f- so fun to watch. Like the talent there is a little bit, it's, it's higher clearly. Than, than what uh, Atlanta United will have throughout the roster. But it was, re- Velas were very intense under Hainsey. They pressed high, they, they, they caused problems, and they attacked quickly. Now, they ran out of gas sometimes in the second half. And in and, and watching the post-game interviews, independent players were like, we knew this. We knew that it was going to be tough in the first 45, but they were going to run out of gas, and that's when Independiente kind of capitalized. So I think that will be great to see how this team in Atlanta uh, internalizes that type of pressure and what Hainsey perhaps w- could modify when he starts to understand the way MLS plays and the way MLS opponents 
face up against Atlanta. I mean, their, their first taste of action is CCL against a very good team in Costa Rica. Uh, but I think you're going to see a team in Atlanta that is just going to be eventually, like I mentioned last month and via tweet, a pain to play against if they can get it all together. And they're going to want to attack. I don't think it's a high-scoring team, but it should be a team that is prog- that is constantly, consistently on the front foot, progressive, pressuring, and good on the ball. They want to keep the ball. Are there any players that you're worried about with everything that we've said? Because uh, if you do have players that maybe were the used to used to the DeBoer system or brought in under Frank DeBoer or maybe have the vestiges of Tata Martino there as well, I still imagine there being some people who are like, we're running how much and we're doing what now? And and I, I do picture some players maybe not fitting into the system, fitting into the style. Do you have any concerns about anybody in particular? Yeah, I think the the player that that stands out, and I, I've written about this. I did a mailbag uh, a few weeks ago, an Atlanta United mailbag, and I focused it on Emerson Hyman. I think he's a he's a, a big question mark. I, I like him as a player. I think he's very technical and smart, uh, and, and good in the box. Like he's a player that if he gets around the box, he'll take shots. He's his technique is so good that most of his shots on goal are pretty clean and, and pretty accurate. Um, the problem is that he he like you mentioned, he came in under DeBoer and I think DeBoer really liked him as well because he had that, he's a bit more of a slow build type of player, a type of midfielder. And that's where I think Emerson Hyman is going to have to adjust. He's the, his speed of play has not always been there. Even when Steven Glass came in as an interim manager, Steven Glass immediately increased the pace of play for Atlanta. And Hyman was so, almost typically the player that I felt was a little couple steps behind. On the ball, he's great. His technique is great. Um, and he distributes well. But as a box-to-box midfielder under Hainsett, which he is, Emerson Hyman told reporters very recently that he had a an, a, an intimate discussion with the manager and Haynes had told him you're going to be more of a box to box eight. So I think that is going to be a, a very interesting um, player to watch how he grows into that position because defensively he's not, he, he himself has said that that's a, an, a, uh, an area of development for him. And he came from Bournemouth and he was basically, you know, elbowed out of the way at Bournemouth because they are a defensive team, a four, four, two defensive team. And the player we mentioned before, Jefferson Lerma essentially, you know, took over that spot because he's a hard-nosed, tough tackler uh, that distributes as well. So Emerson Hyman, I think, is going to be a, a player to watch for Atlanta United. Can, I think he can be good under Hainsa, but he really does have to increase speed of play, do better defensively in transition, and be quicker on the ball. What about uh, Marcelino Moreno, the, the new designated player, who I believe, I'm correct in saying, was signed before Ince took over as manager. Is that a concern at all? I, I, I picture... Not that it will go this way, but like uh, the Kenwin Jones DP signing before Tata Martino's appointed. I'm guessing it's not to that degree, but I'm wondering if you see any issues there. I, I thought personally, uh, and I wrote about it at the time, that it was an issue that Atlanta United was signing a DP level player uh, without a head coach in place. Uh, because there was, at the time, we did not know that Gabriel Heinze was going to c- become the manager. We did not know if he, the new manager was going to be European or South American or what style he was going to come in and implement. So a player like Marcelino Moreno coming from the Argentine league, uh, you know, I, I think there was concern, like what, what, what will happen with this player once the new manager manager is in place? I think with Hainsa in place, uh, it, it bodes well for a player like Moreno. He's, he's very good in my opinion, um, quietly very good. Uh, and, and he's a, just a quiet guy. Also, I got a chance to talk to him recently and he just wants to play ball, man. He just wants to play soccer. Uh, and, and I think he'll do well. He's an attacking player. He's going to come off the left. He's a right-footed uh, attacker, but he's going to come off the left under Hainse. Uh And I think he'll do well. And him and Barco together are expected to be uh, an, you know, a difference-making duo for Atlanta United. And they get along well. I think they play well. They showed that in, in, in the last half of the season last year. Uh, and that'll be a, mat, uh, kind of a pairing to watch. Uh, throughout you know the season under Hainsa. Moreno, I think he's going to do fine because he 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 adapted well to MLS almost immediately. He he's he's quick, he's creative, he takes chances, he likes one-on-one matchups, he plays hard, uh, and he's very smart tactically. So I think for a, for a coach like Gabriel Hainsa coming in and knowing like I've got you know Marcelino Moreno who he knew about because he played at Lanús. 
Uh, I, I'm sure Haynes, it was his eyes lit up a little bit knowing that he's, he has this player that now he can kind of mold um, into his own style. And, and the same goes for Ezekiel Barco, a young player who I'm sure Haynes, uh, when he accepted the job, I'm sure he was like, don't, don't sell that player yet. Give me time with him. Um, and he's key to this, to this season. Uh, and in terms of young players that Ince could mold, I'm guessing Franco Ibarra uh, fits into that conversation as well. Defensive midfielder, 19 years old. I was doing a little bit of reading about him uh, coming from Argentina's juniors, but he's 19. So I was like, oh, he, so they missed each other because Ince left there in what, 2017, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then realizing that he's been there since he was nine years old. I'm guessing there's a relationship there that already exists. Uh, what have you heard about his time with Atlanta so far? How is he looking in preseason? Yeah, he's an interesting player. Franco Barra, 19, uh, you know, a central midfielder that at Argentina Juniors, I think he had maybe 14, 11, between 11 and 14 first division appearances. And, you know, a guy that just really is around the ball all the time, a, a good tackler uh, and a very good distributor after regaining possession for his team. He was more of a deep line uh, central midfielder, though, at Argentino Juniors and through the academy system. And, and he spoke to us recently to reporters here in Atlanta, and he said that Heinze wants him to be similar to, to Heinemann, uh, a box-to-box player. And so I think speaking of Heinemann, you know, that could become an interesting you know, little battle for, for that spot if Ibarra develops quickly. He's a young player. Uh, but he likes, he thought that he told me that the challenges of being a box to box player were the movements on the field that are required by that position under Hainsey movements, meaning where you are, when you receive the ball, where you are out of possession, the, the way you face when, when, when calling for the ball and checking to, and how to distribute in one to two, two passes, uh, what he enjoys from that, this change from a, a box, from a deep line to a box to box midfielder is the fact that you're getting forward and you're on the ball a lot. Uh, so I think that goes back to this notion that the players for Atlanta have to all be really good on the ball. It's like, I know sometimes that's, you could say that about every player in every league, but this is very particular to the way that they want to play. And, and Franco Barra is just, it's, it's a fascinating story. You know, he was, a, he told us recently, he was a ball boy uh, at Argentino juniors when Hainsa was the coach. Uh, and now he's playing under him. I just think that those types of stories are so cool to, to hear from players that they kind of see the coach and they idolize the coach. Uh, and, and then he, you know, down the road, you know, he, they play under that, that same manager that they saw as like a child. So, you know, I think Haynes will do well, you know, in Argentina, Haynes is well known for being what they call un formador, which is basically the coach that molds and develops young players. Uh, I think he enjoys that challenge because I see it as a challenge. I, I think it's easy to say, oh, you know, Frank DeBoer plays young players and this coach plays young players. But I think it really takes like a commitment to understanding the mentality, the the, the skill of the 17, 18, 19 year old players and how to groom them into first division players. And I think Heinze enjoys that. I think that's something that he has proven to do well. And that's that's part of the hire here in Atlanta. That's something that Atlanta wants to continue to to do well is bring players through, whether they're internationals or local players to the academy in USL two or USL. I think just young players in general is something that you're going to see a lot more of in Atlanta and just throughout MLS in general. So he already has the kind of pedigree of bringing through young players, working well with the youth. What about with players who are, say, four years younger than him, but brought in this winter? Because I am still very confused by Lisandro Lopez. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand it. I think it's, uh, you know, Lisandro Lopez, 38. I think he just turned 38, yep. uh, you know, a Racing Club legend. And I, I don't say that lightly. Like, he is considered a legend at that club. He, he was an academy player there. Uh, he made over a hundred appearances or more for that club. And, you know, he did very well in Europe and he came back from Europe and went back to Racing. Um, and, and so, you know, I mentioned before, Atlanta United is going to be a very young team. And, you know, I think something that Frank DeBoer didn't have is anyone in that locker room that could support him. Anyone, <laughs> literally, he came in and, you know, there were, you know, the, the, I think the established, uh, there were, there were players that wanted to give him a chance. Yes. Uh, but it, it just didn't work out. And I think this is my own theory, and, and I've, I've tried to report it out by talking to Lissandra Lopez and, and asking Hainsey about this particularly, but you know, I really feel like Lopez 
is is there for several reasons. One key reason is for just balancing that locker room, being a proxy to the coach, understanding the type of player that Hainsa was and the type of coach that he has become. Lissandra Lopez and Hainsa played together for Argentina. Uh, they understand each other well. I think they they are close off the field, but there is that like very you know pronounced level of respect from player to coach. And, and I think it's important to have a player like that in a young locker room for a new coach that's going to be changing things rapidly, asking players to do more than perhaps they're used to, and knowing that there's a guy that's like, hey, man, I know what he's asking of you. Uh, and, and let's not forget, Lissandra Lopez can play. He's 38, yes. Uh, but he did well last season for Rossi. He scored goals. He's still nimble. Uh, in, in a recent scrimmage that they that they streamed here in Atlanta against the Charleston Battery, you know he looked quick. He's pressing. His touch is there. His 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 command of the game and, and his control of, the, of of where he is on the pitch and his touch and his technique and his understanding of how to be a withdrawn nine uh, or, or or switch to a second striker is all there. And I think he'll be good for this club. That's trying to gradually bring back Joseph Martinez from injury. So uh, that's the Lissandra Lopez signing. And he told me when I spoke to him for 15 minutes uh, recently, he's like, I'm here for a year. I don't have a plan. You know, I don't want to be a coach. That was this like fan theory that he's going to be here. And then he's going to take over when Heinze leaves. And he's like, I'm not here. My plan is not to be a coach. I came here to play. I'm here for a year. If it works out and they extend fine. Uh, But he just wants, you know, he wanted to remove himself from the, the toxic nature and the pressure of Argentine football and come to M- to MLS and, and, and continue to play and continue to improve. All right. Well, Felipe, we've talked Peter Sarsgaard. We've talked South American World Cup qualifying. We've talked Atlanta United. Thank you so much for taking all the time to talk about all the many, many, many things, including uh, why you would 100% choose the United States over Colombia. Uh, actually, based on your answer to the Emerson Hyman question, you practicing the Colombian national anthem and you writing two different articles about how Mexico is better than the United States. I'm feeling a little attacked right now. Hey man, I mean, listen, I I'm sorry. I'm just I, I'm just being honest, man. Being honest. Uh, I I think you know the you can't talk about the U.S. without talking about Mexico, and and there that will continue for as long as these two head coaches, Berhalter and Martino, are in charge. We didn't even touch on that, but just oh, can't wait to see how these teams, two teams, develop and face each other in meaningful matches. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm excited for that. And I'm sure we will have you back on to talk about that when it occurs. But for now, Felipe, thank you again. Uh, Anything you've got coming up this week that people should know about? Yeah, I've got a a new kit story coming out this week and a new feature on, on Ezekiel Barco that I'll be working on today and hopefully get out very soon. Well, there we go. Thank you again, Felipe, for taking all the time to talk to me about all the many things. You're welcome, man. Anytime. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed and we will talk to you again very soon. 